Welcome to Peak Mind. I'm your host, Michael Trainer, and I couldn't be more excited for this week's episode with the one and only Scott Harrison. Scott is the founder of Charity Water. He's been a friend for all, over 12 years now and is has just an incredible personal story. Uh, he went from being a nightclub promoter in New York and uh, being extremely successful but entirely miserable and turning 180 degrees from this successful club promoter to um, going to a mercy ship in Liberia and dedicating his life to ending the clean water crisis. And he's raised over uh, $400 million to date and has helped uh, serve millions of people around the world with clean water. I think as we're recording this conversation, we're amidst the COVID pandemic. One of the key factors, obviously, is hygiene and sanitation. Many people don't know that uh, lack of clean water kills more people than all wars combined. And so right now, sanitation is especially, especially critical, as well as clean drinking water. So one of the things I'm particularly passionate about is uh, supporting great causes uh, this episode I am, am doing because, one, I truly believe in the integrity at Charity Water. Uh, two, Scott's story I think can be really beneficial to all those listening during these times. Uh, Scott's gone through some incredible uh, moments of challenge, and I think his story of tenacity and his doubling down on his values will be something that really serves people as they uh, consider their own mindset uh, during these times whether you're listening uh, during COVID or um, out on the other side of it. So I hope you get a lot of value out of the episode. I'm doing it because, uh, in part, I haven't spoken about this publicly. I will likely do an episode. But my uh, dearly beloved father, John Trainer, who is uh, my heart, and I've spoken about him uh, several times in previous episodes, he just recently passed. And so... Part of the reason for my delay, uh, normally I'm very consistent in my episodes, is I, I flew home to be with him, and it was a very beautiful, um, a very beautiful transition. He was surrounded by loved ones in his home that he's created memories in for over 40 years, and I was very grateful that he uh, passed in the way that he was able to pass. Um, and, and in his honor, I wanted to create a well. He had had such uh, profound experiences on the African continent. Um, I took him to South Africa when he was initially diagnosed with dementia, and uh, he had spent time in East Africa, and a mutual friend of ours, Galila, um, is from Ethiopia, and so I am building a well in his honor, and you can find it linked below, or just Google John Trainer Legacy, and um, if you feel inspired even to give, you know, $10, uh, it would mean the world to me. Um, because I'm basically looking to uh, create a legacy that endures. Um, I mean, his legacy does endure in me and lives on in me and all the lives he's touched, but I'd really love to serve an entire community uh, with uh, clean water. So if you could check it out, uh, the link is in the show notes below. It would mean the world to me if you could contribute whatever's comfortable. I know a lot of people are going through financial challenges at the moment, so... Uh, but I, I also know that when we're in times of challenge, um, focusing out and giving is one of the best things we can do to stay in a good way, in an empowered way. So thank you guys so much. Thank you for listening. And without further ado, it's my pleasure to introduce Scott Harrison. 
All right, I'm here with uh, my, my good friend Scott Harrison. Scott, it's an honor to have you on the show. Michael, it's great to catch up. How you doing? I'm doing pretty well, my man, amidst uh, these challenging circumstances. While, while we're recording, for those listening, obviously this will uh, endure the test of time, but uh, we are amidst the uh, COVID uh, pandemic, and Scott and I were catching we're up. Quarantined. We are quarantined. We, we are quarantined. So, but but what one of the things I think uh, that I admire about you and your work is um, you're always creative in your uh, adaptability, and I think always looking to turn the challenge into the opportunity. So, uh, so I'm actually really glad to be talking to you in this moment. I can't wait. Yeah. So, for those listening, I'm extremely familiar, uh, and I know you've told this story several times, but. But obviously, uh, there was uh, an origin story in terms of your personal journey that was uh, quite a juxtaposition uh, from where you are now, having raised over $300 million and, uh, and, and, and brought clean water to millions of people all around the world. Can you give people a little a bit, bit of background about your journey uh, before starting Charity Water, the Scott Harrison uh, in the New York uh, days uh, prior, to, prior to launch? Sure. Well, I was uh, born in Philadelphia and raised in a very conservative Christian home in New Jersey. So moving to New York City at at 19 years old was an act of rebellion. Uh, It it was kind of the kicking against the goads. I was that good kid growing up. Uh, My mom was unfortunately an invalid. Uh, There was an accident in our family when, uh, when I was four. So I'd grown up you know, playing piano in church on Sundays and cooking for mom and cleaning for mom. And I didn't smoke. I didn't drink. I didn't sleep around. Uh, so New York City was just this big, exciting place that I could do all those things. I could break all the rules and, and see how it felt. So I initially had moved to New York with a rock band. I think of a mix between Pearl Jam, The Counting Crows, and, and a band called Live. And we were we were okay. We were, I'd say we were okay to good. Uh, but we all hated each other. So so that didn't last more than a couple months when we <laughs> broke up. But I, I then became a nightclub promoter. And I kind of stumbled into this profession where I quickly realized you could rebel in style. And it was, a, it was an actual job where you could get paid to drink alcohol for free in public. And your friends would drink for free and you could effectively party for a living. And if you got the right people inside the right nightclubs, you could charge lots and lots of money for, for very cheap cocktails. Uh, you could charge you know $1,000 for a bottle of champagne that might only cost you 35 or 40 bucks. So uh, I began you know, working in the clubs and moving from club to club and building a list and you know, hiring the right DJs and the right uh, throwing fashion parties for magazines or for MTV or VH1 at the time, and eventually worked at 40 different clubs over a 10-year period and picked up all the vices that you might imagine would come with the territory. So I was a -a two-pack-a-day Marlboro Red smoker. I had a serious drinking problem. I had a drug problem, you know, cocaine, ecstasy, MDMA, you know, you name it, Special K. I had a pornography strip club problem and was just kind of this degenerate guy who got wasted for a living but was really good at it and, <laughs> and was really good at getting this this uh this sense of of uh allure and mystery and the velvet rope and you know 
turning people away and you know the VIP room bottle service all that stuff so it was a it was a, a decade maybe I'm not incredibly proud of but I did learn a lot over that period and I guess the one theme was I was a promoter so mm-hmm. I was promoting the idea that if you got into our club uh, which was undoubtedly the right club. If you got past the doorman and the velvet rope and you got the right table and you spent thousands of dollars on booze, uh, then your life had meaning. You know, that you, you had arrived. And I was promoting that at, at 40 different uh, venues and locations around the city. Uh, and then eventually woke up one day uh, and, and it started with some health issues. Half my body went uh, unexplainably numb. One day, and uh, you know, I remember going to doctors for a series of the the usual, the MRIs and CT scans and EKGs, and you know, they couldn't find anything wrong with me. Um, my business partner said, "Well, bro, you you party and do drugs every night. Like it's no, <laughs> your, your your body's just crying out for mercy." Uh, but you know, the, they those symptoms actually kind of just went away as mysteriously as they started. And and then a few months later, I found myself uh, in Punta del Este, Uruguay, which is just a party town in South America. And I was on this pretty decadent, opulent vacation. And I remember my girlfriend at the time was uh, you know, on the cover of fashion magazines. And I had the stupid Rolex watch and the BMW and the grand piano in my New York apartment and the Labrador retriever and I was partying with all the right, rich, beautiful people, and there were magnums of Dom Perignon everywhere. And I just realized, yeah, none of this means anything. Mm. And and somehow, <laughs> slowly, but then almost suddenly, I've just become the worst person I know. And my life has no meaning. I'm morally bankrupt. I'm spiritually bankrupt. My tombstone's going to read, you know, here lies a, a dude who got a million people drunk. And, you know, I'd done nothing for others. It was, it was just a pure, selfish lifestyle. Mm. And I, I wanted to change, kind of sitting there in Punta del Este, you know, hung over during the days, just realized there's got to be more than this. Yeah. So when you, when you had that reckoning, which, which I think is extraordinarily powerful, and you realized that uh, you were sort of, for, for lack of better words, on the wrong track, what were what was your sort of reckoning and realization and and, and I, I know you took a rather abrupt 180 i mean it wasn't like you you were like okay i think i'll quit smoking or you know you kind of quit as i understand it everything at once and literally looked to go in the entire entirely opposite direction um how did that how did that transpire how did you go from that uh you know nightclub promoter working with you know the 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 you know the most successful you know people in the city and how did you also, uh, I mean, I imagine some of the skills that you developed uh, in terms of the narrative around, uh, you know, our, our traditional, you know, con, you know, commercial ventures of, of selling the sex and, and the mystery. Fortunately, you had that as a great storyteller that you, you translated in new ways later. But how did you make the 180 turnaround from, from Punta del Este to, to, to the Mercy Ships and then ultimately to Charity Water? Yeah, well, you know, part of it has to do with a... Uh, I mean, I guess you could say I had a faith experience. I'd, again, I'd been brought up in the church, and I'd rebelled against you know any notion of religious anything. Mm. And you know, kind of coming to the end of myself, I turned back to to faith, and I was really interested in the idea of uh, of faith and service. You know, I remember coming across uh, 
uh, this this book in the New Testament, uh, this this verse in the book of James, it said, "True religion is to look after widows and orphans in their distress, and to keep yourself from being polluted by the world." And I was like, "Man, I'm over too. I've done nothing for a widow or orphan. I don't even know any widows and orphans. And uh, not only am I the most polluted person I know, I actually pollute others for a living." So, you know, I really began to re-explore a, a very lost Christian faith, but at 28 years old, having been gone 10 years and and maybe, um, you know, it wasn't the faith of my parents or it wasn't what was maybe uh, jammed down my throat. So, you know, that really led me a couple months later to ask a, a very pointed question, what would the opposite of my life look like? Yeah, I, I think I realized, Michael, that... <laughs> A, a a small course correction was not needed. It was not a pivot that was needed. This was a, you know, leave everything behind and go walk 180 degrees in the opposite direction. Mm. And, you know, it was a little, little bit of a, a Damascus experience, I guess. And the, the answer to that question, what might be the opposite of my life look like, uh, the only idea I had was take a year, almost in uh, as a tithe or a penance, uh, for the 10 years that I'd selfishly wasted on myself mm. and go serve others, uh, go join and volunteer with a humanitarian organization. So I'm like, well, this is a great idea. I mean, I'll go serve the poor, maybe in the poorest country in the world. And I start applying to Doctors Without Borders and World Vision and Save the Children and UNICEF and you know the World Food Program. I, I can't even remember all the organizations, but I applied to 10 or so organizations and then maybe, no surprise to anybody listening, was then denied for free service by all those organizations because that was a nightclub promoter. <laughs> and these were serious, credible people uh, running you know, s- serious missions to Sudan and the like. Uh, they weren't exactly looking for, for club rats <laughs> or, or DJs. So I remember just being so frustrated because here I was, I'd left New York, I'm, I'm ready for the life change, I'm ready to go all in, and everybody's like, peace, bro, uh, no, no, no thanks, <laughs> we're, we're doing fine. So, you know, we wouldn't be having this conversation, obviously, unless one said yes, and it was exactly one organization that wrote me back and said, uh, <laughs> if you pay us $500 a month and you're willing to go live in post-war Liberia... Uh, a country I'd never even heard of in West Africa, then you can join our mission for a year. I'm like, this is amazing. I mean, talk about opposite. Not only is this free, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go broke. <laughs> I'm gonna pay to to serve. And and believe it or not, Liberia at that time was actually the poorest country in the world. Uh, it had, after a 14 year civil war, it had actually fallen off the United Nations development chart. And there just wasn't enough data, and then come back on dead last. So. This group said, hey, we're sailing a huge hospital ship, a 522-foot hospital vessel, uh, into the, the, the dock, the, the, the free port of Monrovia, Liberia. And this is a country with no electricity, no running water, no sewage, no mail. Uh, it's a country where there's one doctor for every 50,000 people. And they said, we're going to be able to help as many people as possible. Mm. And your job is going to be to document all those people that we help, all the people that need help, and then all the people that get help uh, for the medical library. And then hopefully we can use those images that you take uh, and, the, and the stories that you might write 
you know, your, your photojournalism to raise more awareness and more money. So this, this was exciting. It was exactly what I'd been hoping for, uh, to be removed from my environment. And, you know, a couple, I mean, a couple weeks later, I found myself on a hospital ship with 350 volunteer humanitarian crew in a 150 square foot cabin, if it was even that big, with two roommates who worked in the engine room of the ship. So it was, it was such a radical life change. And, you know, what I saw there just just forever changed me. Mm-hmm. Uh, our, our third day on the mission, uh, we, we, would, uh, we, would, we would triage, we would screen patients to see whom we might be able to help, who would have the conditions like cleft lips or cleft palates or tumors or cataracts, the things that that we could operate on. And I remember being told that uh, we had, you know, about 1,500 available surgery slots over the, the period of months subsequent and that a lot of people would come. And I remember thinking, you know, come on. I mean, are 1,500 people could actually come with these conditions and I remember getting up at five in the morning, my third day in Africa, uh, throwing on hospital scrubs, grabbing two Nikon D1X cameras, and, and joining a convoy, a medical convoy, as it snaked through the city toward the football stadium, the, the soccer stadium that the government had given us. And I'll never forget, Michael, we turned the corner and there were more than 5,000 people standing in the parking lot mm. waiting for us to open the doors so they could hopefully have a shot at, at, you know, one of the 1500 slots available. And, you know, the next day we, we sent over 3000 people home uh, and later learned many of these people had walked more than a month just with the hope of seeing a doctor, many of them bringing their children from, from neighboring countries, from Guinea or Cote d'Ivoire or, uh, or Sierra Leone. And we just didn't have enough doctors. We didn't have enough resources. So that was, such a moment uh, of of realizing, wow, there were these huge needs out there. We were meeting the needs, but but not enough of them, and there was just so much suffering. Yeah, I watched, um, which I highly recommend anyone listening go check out. Um, Scott at CharityWater.org backslash the spring has this beautiful twenty minute video, um, which I think did you you work with Jason Russell on that? I think uh, if we I'm did. Yeah. yeah, Jason worked with a bunch of archival footage and yeah helped us direct and kind of put that together. You know, of course, I wanted to make a two hour film, and Jason's like, <laughs> how about how about nineteen minutes? I mean, we make a really interesting nineteen minutes. And, and, and it was. I mean, it, it, interestingly enough, so so definitely check that out because I think the images you share, uh, one of the things I just also want to acknowledge you for, since I've known you, and, and I, I've known you now for 12 years, um, I recognize, because I, I first connected with you when I was at grad school at Columbia, and um, I remember coming down, I think it was to one of your very first offices, um, and it was you and Vic and uh, Becky at the time, and there was three of you, and you had gone on a walk right before I met you, and as I understood it, it was the walk in which you shared with your now now, now wife, Vic, that you you, uh, you you might be interested beyond, because you guys were just sort of in the trenches, as I understand it, working. Um, but to think about in 12 years uh, what you've accomplished, um, and I think to also think about your focus, which I imagine in seeing those 5,000 people, 
Um, and knowing at that time, at least I believe when you started, there was I think what 1.1 billion people without access to clean water, and yep. uh, now it's now it's down to 785 million. Exactly. I mean, it's 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 an incredible success story that you are um, leading the charge on. And I and, and actually I don't know if I've ever shared this with you, um, but when I this is a, a little personal redemption. I had flown into New York right after, so I, I did a personal tithing year as well after after Columbia, where I volunteered around the world uh, for different organizations. And it was actually when I was with the Greenbelt Movement, uh, Wangari Maathai, the the first African woman to win the Nobel Peace Prize. I was traveling in the villages uh, with with the Greenbelt Movement that I first saw. And I had lived in Sri Lanka and traveled through India, so I had been exposed to extreme poverty. But it was the first time I had ever witnessed um, some of the stories that I had seen at the charity ball, um, where I saw a girl in, in northern Uganda that was literally sitting there with a, a jerry can, you know, uh, digging into totally parched earth, uh, and and literally less than a teaspoon worth of water, and people literally lined up behind her. Um, in this, one of the most, and I had been to some pretty devastating places, uh, you know, one of the most devastating situations I'd ever witnessed. And then seeing, you know, several miles down the road, um, at that point in time with the Greenbelt Movement, a community where the women had been empowered and, and economically remunerated for planting trees, and which had led to sort of a, a healthier ecosystem, and girls went to school, and they had their own well, and it was it was incredibly powerful. So when I when I discovered your work, and saw the stories that you were telling, and had had that pers- firsthand experience, one of the things that I loved about what you did was your proximate experiences in terms of what you did at the time with the charity ball, where people would come from New York to what was one of the the most dynamic experiences, and have people literally, you know, doing you know doing walks with jerry cans to get the feeling of what it would be to you know like to walk or or, or pumping the wells, and the and the way that you use story is probably best in class. I don't know if I've ever seen another organization tell stories as well as you as you did. How how did you how did how has story sort of played, you know, how do you see story in in the in the, in the sort of gestation and, and the growth uh, of Charity Water? You know, I get asked that sometimes, Michael, and um, I, I think uh, of the the things maybe Charity Water has done well. Uh, you know, or the things that have led us to, I don't know, I think we've raised over $450 million now and, you know, helped 11 million people across 28 or so countries. I would actually say storytelling would be the number one thing. Um, more than, you know, if you could, you could take away the hundred percent model, which, which has served us well, you could take away, you know, great design and branding and innovation and virtual reality and all that kind of stuff. I think it is the, the storytelling muscle perhaps that has allowed us to get so many people to care about this issue specifically. And, and again, this is an issue that doesn't affect most of the people that are, that are supporting our movement. You know, I mean, there are certainly some pockets of America without uh, water coverage, but America officially has a hundred percent water coverage. Yet at the 10th of the world uh, doesn't have clean water to drink 40% you know, specifically as we record this in the time of COVID, 40% of the households around the world don't have clean water or soap mm. in the household. So, you know, you've, but yet it's not something that we really experience. I mean, we've got water everywhere. We're, you know, when's the last time you've been thirsty? You know, we run a marathon and there's people holding cups uh, along the way. So 
I think it's the storytelling that is a lot, and, and particularly visual storytelling. I mean, Charity Water's made over 1,400 videos and short films. It's the let's show and tell um, and try to bring people into this this new world or you know, let's try to transport them 3,000 miles away uh, and connect them to the needs on the ground, but maybe doing that in a more hopeful and aspirational way. You know, we, we, we try not to... Well, we try to be very intentional about not peddling shame and guilt, but inviting people to be a part of, you know, wonderful transformative change that is happening in people's lives and in communities' lives through clean water. So I think it's just the way we see the world, you know, and and we see stories everywhere. I mean, one of the favorite uh, ones I love to tell is we many years ago we crowdsourced a million dollar drilling rig and. Uh, a whole package, compressors and support trucks and tools. And we shipped it from Europe to Ethiopia, and it was now one of eight rigs in our fleet there. And I remember we crowdsourced the funding of the million-dollar rig. So 10,000 donors had given about 100 bucks each for their rig. Mm. And we named it. We mounted a GPS tracker to it. We, we built an online map so all, all the, the people, all 10,000 people could actually see where their rig was around the world as it went around Ethiopian drilling. Well, a couple years later, I hear through the grapevine that our rig has crashed. And, you know, it's it's on its back, wheels in the air, like, you know, the picture of a bug on its back, you know, just kind of flailing. <laughs> and, you know, our, our local partners uh, kind of, as you would expect, were in the process of fixing it, putting it back on the road, and then, you know, putting it back in action. It's kind of like if you crash your dad's car, you know, you typically fix it first if you can, and then say, hey, dad, I crashed your car, but I fixed it and everything's fine. Yeah. Right? So I remember, though, hearing the story and trying to get a video crew out immediately because I was I was so excited about the you know capturing the photo of this rig on its belly or video even – and then sending an email to the 10,000 people that paid for that rig with a subject line, we crashed your rig in Ethiopia. And then proceed to kind of storytelling, because when I found out what happened, it was that our partners were trying to reach a marginalized remote village. They were not drilling wells by the side of paved roads, right? They were going out to reach the areas of greatest need, uh, sometimes taking risks, being on roads that they weren't even roads. Some communities actually building roads for a period of months just to allow the, the rig access into that community. And like many of us experience, something went wrong and they ran off the road and they crashed the rig. And then they're doing their best to fix it and then still try and serve that same remote community. And I just thought there would be so much uh, resonance there. And we've told stories like that of, of things going wrong over the years. Now, it turned out that they fixed it before we could get the crew out there. So I never really got to tell it. But I guess all that to say is that, you know, that might not be how a typical charity would like, oh, let's <laughs> let's tell 10,000 people that we broke the asset that they paid for. But that story to me, you know, A, would have it was true. And B, it would have spoken to deeper values that we were trying to share. Yeah. The tenacity of our parents, of our partners, the, the dedication, the commitment that they have to not just take the easy way out. And, and then the reality of when working in these harsh operating environments, things go terribly wrong. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, the that's one thing that's always struck me. I think about you is distilling down the macro narrative into the story, one salient story that's perhaps counterintuitive, but uh, but I think speaks to your values. And to me, one of the core things I've always loved about you is the values and the innovation uh, and storytelling that you've led with. And for those who don't know, you know, you know, why, as I understand it, one of your core values is transparency, which is which is part of the reason why I've loved you and you know built wells uh, with you guys before, because you can literally go and track your contribution to its deployment in the field. Um, but also, like you're embracing a failure and like your your humility and acknowledging, you know, when things don't go perfectly. I think so many so many organizations and cultures kind of like shove all that under the rug. And I think you, as I know you personally, and I think both as well as in the organization, are totally uh, willing to admit um, that you're, you know, at times figuring it out. And when things don't go right or there's a failure, it, it occurs to me that you embrace it. Um, what 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 are your core values? Like, if you were to if you were to distill down the core values of the organization, um, what are they? Well, uh, excellence is one. Yeah, um, that's a really important one. Um, generosity is another one. Mm. Uh, integrity would be the number one value. Mm. So that would kind of be the you know our, our really our 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 mission is to bring clean and safe drinking water to people around the world in need. Um, but the vision, really, the bigger thing we're doing is really trying to reinvent charity, to reimagine what a charity should should look like, uh, the, 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 tr- the relationship of trust that it builds with, with donors and volunteers and team members. You know, charity means love. It's a beautiful word. It means to help your neighbor in need and get nothing in return. But yet so many people have been turned off by charities. There have been scandals. Uh, recently, NYU ran a poll. They found 70% of Americans believe charities just wasted their money. Hmm. So we have really been in the business through the 100% model, through uh, using technology to geolocate wells and prove them on Google Earth and Google Maps and all, all this kind of uh, – it's been a, an exercise in rebuilding donor trust through myriad ways. So integrity is is number one. You know, I'll give you just one example. So uh, we raise all of the overhead, and it's a it's a you know hundred million dollar a year organization. Um, we raise all of our overhead for the organization, and and that would have been twenty one million dollars this year, just to give you an example. So, you know, it's it's significant. We raise that from. 135 families. So all they do is they pay for overhead. They pay for the unsexy costs like the office and the Epson copy machine and the salaries and the insurance and the dental and the 401k, you know, all those benefits. And then a million donors get to give knowing that 100% of their money goes directly to build water projects, which we then prove and help people get clean water. So 100% of the money in the field. So, you know, one thing that people don't know is 13 years ago, we said, all right, well, technically, when a donor gives, we don't get 100% if they use their credit card. Right? So if you go online right now and you give $100 on your Amex, I mean, while I wish Amex waived their fees for charity, they take 4%. So I get 96 bucks. So for 13 years, we've been quietly paying back all of those transaction fees out of the overhead account so that there's true integrity in the 100%. So we actually send money we didn't even get from your donation to the field. And, you know, at scale now, that'll cost us almost half a million dollars this year uh, of, of money we have to raise just to pay back those Visa, MasterCard, uh, you know, Amex donations. But, 
you know, that, that ties back to the value of integrity. So uh, we have six values. So integrity, respect, excellence, innovation, passion, and generosity. And then we have uh, a whole set of things called isms. There's about 20 of those. And those are just examples of things that might, uh, you, you know, you're at charity water if these things happen and they all tie back to the value. So they're more, even though those are stories. Mm. Um, I mean, this is, this is a bizarre one that'll, you know, make some head scratch, but we have, we have a zero tolerance for profanity at the organization. So there's just no swearing, um, for 13 years now. And we tie that back to respect and we work with a lot of kids. Yeah. And Michael, we had 74 year olds in our office for a tour recently. They don't need to hear the F-bomb, mm-hmm. you know, dropped out of accounting or engineering. Uh, you know, they don't need to hear Jesus Christ, you know, shouted at the top of, we work with a lot of faith-based groups, um, from Christians to Mormons, to Jews, to Muslims, to, you know, so we, we have these kind of weird things that, uh, that we call the isms that then tie back. And, you know, I remember, you know, a bunch of people at first would kind of come in whining about that. I mean, nobody can tell me what to do or say. And we're like, look, you can opt out of all of these things. You don't, you know, if, you, if swearing is important to you, then just go work somewhere else. Uh, and, you know, over time, it's been fun to have people come up to me and say, wow, I feel like I'm a better dad. You know, I, I stopped swearing around my kids at the house or you know, it, 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 the goal there is to try to build a respectful, um, generous culture. So that would be one of, of 20 isms, as an example. Yeah, I, I, I've noticed that I think both in, in your integrity, I think, I think one of the reasons why you've had such success, and I, you know, I don't know if, if everyone listening knows, but you know, you, you've galvanized and attracted some of, some of the leading entrepreneurs in the world to back, uh, to back your, your well, to be, to be the ones who contribute to those, those hard costs. And having, you know, worked in and run nonprofits myself, you know, a, a lot of times part of that distrust goes into, you know, how are people operating the overhead? What, we don't really know what's going on there. And for you to say transparently, hey, you know, we're a $100 million organization, $21 million going to overhead, and also, you know, like transparently break that down and have people not only willing but uh, but committed to fighting for the unsexy part of that donation, which is the overhead. I think is is super powerful. And, and as yeah, I, Michael, I mean, I believe people want to meet needs. Yeah. And so trust is needed. So if you can establish trust with a group of people, and trust is often established through transparency. Uh, if I told you right now that the you know the front door of the office was broken and we needed sixteen hundred bucks, somebody would step up and send a sixteen hundred dollar check to meet the need. Yeah. Because our office needs a front door, yeah, right? I mean, it's just the it's the not knowing. So I think donors are open to myriad value propositions. They just want to know where their money goes, and and what need they're they're meeting, and they want to opt into that. It's the opacity that I think has has plagued the sector, and and been such a disservice. I agree. Um, one, one story that always spoke to me, and I, I'd love to get a little bit more color on it from you, is I remember, I think it was towards the very beginning, when you almost ran out of gas. Um, and I think you had somewhere like $860,000 in the bank account, but that was already earmarked for you know for uh, your, your, your deployment in the field. But you didn't have enough money, I think, in a couple weeks to pay payroll. So, so the the charity model, uh, charity water model, which has now proven itself wildly successful at that time, uh, was on the brink of of its own demise. Uh, and I remember that you um, 
that you convinced a, a gentleman who's be, become a very significant and family uh, donor to the, the, to give you a million dollars to kind of put keep the lights on for for a year's worth of expenses. What what enabled you? In I'm always fascinated by mindset. Prior to that donation coming through, how what were you thinking, and how were you thinking uh, through the possibilities of you know facing your own existential collapse? You know how can I get creative? Because I've seen you innovate time and time again, and, and, and fundamentally shift the direction of, of something that occurred to me as working in the organization. And I'm fascinated by that mindset. Like, what was going through your mind at that time, and how did you uh, pivot or, or welcome in um, the opportunity to sort of um, to keep, keep gas in the tank? Michael, I think you're giving us uh, too much credit for that point in the life cycle. <laughs> um, that was, uh, you know... Uh, faith, luck, miracle, uh, you know, I, I didn't even ask him for the money. Um, I mean, I think, you know, so winding back to that moment, the organization was two years old, two and a half years old. We were really successful out of the gate at raising millions of dollars for these water projects. Mm-hmm. And we'd hired nine people. Uh, we were we were growing like crazy, but I just couldn't get anybody excited about paying nine salaries at the time. I mean, it just, it wasn't a brand. We didn't have a million Twitter followers. I mean, it was, it was early days, but yet I could get a lot of people excited about buying a well, uh, which, which I think you did years ago, you know, yeah. giving an entire community, uh, in Ethiopia, clean water was something that people could say, I can give to that, especially if I could see it, if I could see a satellite image of it, uh, or, or photos from it, I'll buy that. So I was really in this quandary because we we were growing on the one side. We were growing in the mission side, but yet couldn't keep the lights on. And we came to this crossroads where I just tapped everybody I knew. And we had a few weeks left in the overhead account, but almost $900,000, $881,000, I actually remember, in the water bank account. So effectively, you know, 10 months or so of operating capital had we dipped into that. But remember, we'd made this promise that all that 900 grand was was going straight to the field. So I remember getting advice at the time from friends who said, "Oh, come on, man, money's fungible. Like, just go borrow. You know, take a take take a note against it. You go borrow from that account, make your payroll. You got to pay your people, and then you know, pay it back at some point in the future." And I remember thinking, man, if we borrowed one penny, I mean, these are actually different accounts. They're, they're different numbered, differently audited bank accounts. Mm-hmm. Internally, I said, man, if we borrow one penny from the water bank account, then we've broken trust. We've compromised our integrity. There's going to be a crack at the foundation. I mean, we should just resign in shame. We shouldn't even be doing this work. And I was going to go bankrupt. I was going to shut down the charity. There was going to be no more charity water, but at least we would have done what we said. We would have sent the $900,000 to the field. We would have built 90 more wells and said, hey, we tried to innovate in this business model, but it was just too hard. And that's when uh, you know, this, this gentleman, Michael Birch, uh, who I, I had written a cold email unrelated about something else uh, six months prior, uh, writes me and says, I'm going to be in New York. Uh, really like what you're doing. Like to learn more and sat with me for two hours. I thought he didn't even like me. I certainly didn't pitch him a million dollars, but was just honest and transparent about where the organization was. And he left the meeting and wired a million dollars in the overhead account. Hmm. And we went from insolvent or or near insolvency to well capitalized for more than a year. And then we used that time to then innovate 
on how we would raise overhead in a sustainable way. And, and today, um, we have a pretty sophisticated program called The Well, which is made up of 135 families from all around the world. And they all give uh, on three-year cycles. So it's a multi-year, multi-tier program. And that covers, you know, 100% of the overhead. Um, so, you know, uh, we weren't, I wouldn't say we were innovating at the time. Michael, Michael's gift gave us the kind of the breathing room and the ability to to then innovate for the future, and uh, but but again, you know, had had he not walked in there, there's there's no charity water. We're not having this conversation today. Yeah, how pivotal have I mean, you you you've been able to build, I think, some really remarkable relationships, um, and and it's not something I've heard you talk about that much. Uh, obviously, there there are certain things that are just like that profoundly stand out, but. But I, I would imagine that you are uh, an absolute expert at developing authentic relationships. And I, and I know that you take, for example, people, to, you know, some of these donors to, to Ethiopia to see what they're, you know, the, the work that they're doing. And I imagine that has a profound effect. But what, how, do you, how do you look at community and relationship as it, resu- as it relates to your work? I mean, I guess we try to bring the same values, generosity, respect, integrity, uh, excellence, you know, in, into those relationships. And, you know, I've certainly become friends with, you know, with many of the donors. I mean, you know, once you give a hundred grand or, or plus in, in the well, you certainly, um, have the ability to come to the field. And I've been able to take, you know, gosh, probably 350 people now, um, over the years, you know, that have supported our overhead in significant ways. Uh, I've taken many of their children, uh, and, you know, develop some, some relationships. I mean, uh, Michael's house in San Francisco was the Charity Water Hotel. I mean, we just, we had the keys to the house. We had the, the alarm codes and they were just incredibly generous with, with house and cars and saved us tons and tons of money, uh, just over the years, you know, by, by really kind of developing a relationship that was maybe more than, more than business and, and really turned into friendship. Um, I think we just, I don't know. I mean, you just try and treat people well, Michael. Yeah. And and be truthful. And uh, when you have needs, you share those needs. Uh, You try to be grateful. Uh, You try to be, uh, you know, we try to be generous. And, you know, often Vic and I will give to the causes of our well members, um, obviously on a much smaller uh, (laughs) uh, level than they're able often to give to, to, to charity water. But, you know, we we also want to support the things that they care about, uh, domestic issues or, or other international causes. So, yeah. I, I guess um, again, if you just run the the same six values uh, against relationships, we we try to just hold hold true to them. Yeah, beautiful. And now, w- one of the question I've been wondering for a while is is how do you like? I, I know con- in the context of the book, for example, uh, you know the organization as it was approaching its decade, you had, you know, you were you were in a moment of burnout, and um, and I'd love to hear a little bit of color in that story. Um, and as I understand it, that was the gestation of the spring, which is one of your, you know, one of your current initiatives um, to really scale up efforts. But one thing I've noticed about you, even from the very beginning, um, you know, I remember when, we, when you first started the Charity Water Gala in New York uh, when I was there was was, you know, the in, in my view, the sort of charity events in the city and you know, incredible production, incredible stories, and you would you would raise you know quite significant amounts of money, 
Um, and it always seemed su successful. And, and I think most charities would, would definitively rest on their laurels. But year in, year out, you kind of innovated and pushed and created new stories. I remember the first year you for the auction, you didn't even actually auction anything. You literally just had the opportunity for people to come up and make a commitment as it related to what they were willing to, to give uh, to, to these various communities and told the story of like one person in that community. And for those who are listening that don't know, which is a story you tell very well, I mean, clean, lack of clean water kills, kills more people than all, all, all wars combined. Uh, and, yep. and so I think that's the way that you tell that and you tell that through one story, or even when I first started volunteering with you guys, you tell me about your idea for a birthday campaign and a September, you know, what was what turned into the September campaign, which has now been co-opted by so many charities. And you saying, all right, well, we're going to focus in, in a new direction, right? So, so, so you pivot, you innovate, and you innovate to such a degree that I think other, a lot of other people copy you, which, uh, which is, I think, a, you know, a form of flattery. Uh, but then you, you come up with a, you know, new wind for the sales, if you will. Um, which, how do you know it's time to innovate? And is there a particular process around that? And, and what led you, uh, and if you, you can maybe just focus on this, but what led you to the spring? Yeah. Well, a lot of stuff there. Um, yeah. I think a lot of times innovation. So, so the spring specifically, okay, let's try to figure out where to dive in. So one of the things Charity Water did early or unique, uniquely well, we were just early in the peer-to-peer -peer fundraising game. So we kind of invented this idea of using your birthday to raise money. Uh, and, and the sticky idea was you'd ask for your age in dollars. So a seven-year-old would just say, hey, uh, turning seven, would you please donate $7 to my birthday campaign? And 100% of that money goes to Charity Water. Or an 81-year-old would ask for $81. And we, we very quickly uh, developed this army of, of birthday fundraisers uh, and, 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 and even other fundraisers, people who would you know, run marathons or, or climb mountains or you know, sail across uh, the Atlantic and wound up raising over $70 million just through those, those micro campaigns. And what was great about it was that the average birthday campaign would generate 10 donations. So if you donated your birthday, you would bring 10 people into the mission, uh, the cause. The problem was people would only do one birthday. Mm. So they would have a great, have a great experience. They would raise a bunch of money. They would tick the box and many of them would actually take our idea and then they would, you know, raise money for, uh, for education the next year or a justice issue or healthcare, but we wouldn't get the repeat revenue or the repeat donations. So we had eight years of growth. We took the organization from, you know, a cold start to about $45 million in annual donations. And then we had our first down year and that was our ninth year. And we went from 45 million to 36 million, and it felt terrible. And one of the things that happened was just that idea, the birthday idea became commoditized. Um, I'll never forget when a $100 million charity known very famously for gift catalogs, uh, paper gift catalogs, I mean, they raised you know, close to $100 million, uh, emails me and asks me to donate my birthday. Uh, the writing was on the wall. You know, we, we, we don't have first mover advantage. Facebook started rolling out birthdays, uh, you know, the, the coming of age of CrowdRise and Classy and all these other different platforms. We, you know, the, the, the word was out on the peer-to-peer -peer space, specifically birthdays. So 
as you said, you know, I wrote about this in, in, in my book, Thirst. You know, I, I had this existential leadership crisis. I burned out. All I'd known was growth. Growth meant people getting clean water. I had failed. Uh, we went from getting a million new people clean water in year eight to only 800,000 in year nine. So I felt like I personally let down 200,000 people and I was ready to quit and hire a CEO and, you know, let a real leader take over. And eventually took a month off, went to California, sat uh, with my family in a you know, little lodge in the middle of nowhere, and just said, well, it's okay. I, I, I could leave. You know, I could bring on a new leader, but I should at least try to fix the problem and not give him a, you know, a, a down, a declining revenue organization. So as I thought about it, um, I, had, I had been with Daniel Eck of Spotify in Ethiopia uh, recently, and you know, just thinking about Spotify and Netflix's business model and how great that was. You know, they they would acquire a customer uh, and establish a relationship effectively forever, <laughs> for as long as they that value exchange was relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll pay Spotify ten dollars a month as long as they keep delivering great music, right? Or we'll pay Netflix fourteen or fifteen a month uh, as long as they, they keep making content. So that was really the idea behind the spring. Could we create a new community, uh, a kind of pure giving community where 100% of the money would not pay for mo- movies or music or magazines or cloud storage or you know photo storage, any of the stuff that we're used to subscribing for, but 100% would go directly to help human beings get clean and safe water to drink. And we weren't sure it was going to work, but as he said, we launched it with this video um, that people can find at thespring.com, and it wound up getting over I don't know thirty-five or forty million views, and and just working, and people started joining from all around the United States and then all around the world, and you know today uh, there are over forty-nine thousand Spring members from a hundred and I think it's one hundred and thirty countries now, so we have Spring members all throughout Africa. Uh, that are showing up and and people are giving forty dollars a month, which is what it costs to get one person clean water. Uh, some people are giving a hundred dollars a month, and some people are giving ten bucks a month. Uh, we have people in their in their nineties giving from their pension, and we've got kids who are who are turning in their allowance uh, to to their parents to be spring members. So that was really an innovation based out of need. Oh crap! The thing that was driving all the growth is not driving growth anymore. It's actually not even a great business model because it's non-repeatable. I mean, would I rather have Michael Trainer as a spring member at 40 bucks a month, you know, for the rest of your life or have you do one birthday? So, you know, and, and just your impact over, you know, a year, three years, five years, 10 years it, to the issue would be far greater than, than a, a birthday. Um, other times I think we've innovated because it's, it's with a curiosity. Um, we made one of the very first virtual reality films just because, we wanted to try out the space. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we we thought there was a short moment in time that people would be interested in the technology, and you know, for eight an eight or a ten minute film, we could intravenously uh, inject content without distraction by strapping a movie fa- movie set on their face. And you know, we made an eight minute film called The Source that followed a thirteen year old girl in Ethiopia over the six days when she gets clean water for the first time in her life. And on day one, she's drinking disgusting, fecally contaminated brown water uh, from a swamp. And on day six, she's drinking clean water for the first time in her life. 
and you know we made the film early and then and then wound up showing it to thousands and tens of thousands of people and the film that we made for i don't know maybe 60,000 raised millions and millions and millions of dollars um, partly because we were early and people were just curious in what is VR? I just want to try on a headset. So if they're going to try on a headset, they might as well watch some redemptive content instead of, you know, uh, a tour of the, you know, a penthouse in Dubai, you know, by Marriott or something. Yeah. Well, you've been, you've always been, uh, I think at the, at the, at the lead end of that innovation. And I, I want to take a moment cause we're, we're c- coming to the conclusion of our, of our time together, uh, just to, just to really acknowledge you, um, Scott, because, you know, I don't think I've ever shared this with you, but, um, you know, I, I, I had the good fortune of volunteering, uh, with you guys, uh, when you were just getting started and there was a moment where I had sort of revisited with family after that trip I just mentioned, uh, volunteering around the world, my own sort of tithing experience, if you will. And I had gotten offered a very, very lucrative commercial opportunity in New York. And I flew in, and all I had to do was deliver a hard drive. Um, and it, I would have met a very significant amount of money. And I didn't feel aligned with my values. And instead, I said, you know what, I'm actually going to volunteer at the charity uh, ball because it was it was in December and you guys were you know coming on. And actually at that charity ball uh, volunteering on the red carpet, two things happened. One, I saw our mutual friend Galila, who's uh, just a wonderful human and supporter of yours and promised her that uh, I would go to Ethiopia. And secondly, I reconnected with Bobby Bailey and uh, and Hugh Evans, and that actually was the gestation point for the conversation that led to us, um, you know, launching GPP USA, which turned into Global Citizen and the Global Citizen Festival, which you guys were obviously you were you were the first conversation. Uh, you guys were part of that first year festival, and obviously that's grown on uh, in its own regard. But also on a personal level. Uh, when I saw you at Global Citizen Festival in year three, and I was considering making a move because my father had been diagnosed with dementia, I remember to this day you saying you'll never regret the time you spent with him. And uh, I do not regret one moment that I spent with him. And it's actually in his honor when I thought about his legacy that uh, I decided I would do it well um, in his honor. So for those that are interested, I'm going to link below uh, but John Trainer Legacy, if you if you Google that, um, we're, we're going to create a well in his honor. And I also want to encourage people to to join the spring because I can think of few greater organizations that I think embody the kind of integrity and ethos that sh- that you and Charity Water embody, Scott. So thanks for the work. Well, you Michael, do. I know I know you just lost your father, but I I know he'd be proud of you and the work that you've done uh, for others and just how how you see the world um how how much you care and and how big your heart is <laughs> thanks man yeah it's uh it's 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 been an it's been an honor to uh to to have been on the journey so far and and i think inspired in part by you know what i see from friends like yourself you know it's it's uh it's it's always an opportunity. One of the things that I that I've realized about life is, in part, it's about you know letting go of that which does not serve you, which you did very well, and uh, you know some, some 13 years ago now, and and from that, how do you turn that into the sort of spiritual compost for for the next garden? And so I'm in, in a new chapter of life, uh, but this will definitively be part of that journey. And uh, I want to encourage everyone that's listening to pick up a copy of Scott's book, Thirst and to, to join the spring uh, and to contribute uh, because 
I think that the legacy that you're creating for the planet is one that is truly uh, noble, and and you've you've served millions of people, and I know that you're committed to the core to seeing uh, the water crisis ended in our lifetime. So so thanks for the work you do, Scott. Thanks, Ben. It was an honor to be here. Thanks, brother. And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Scott. I know that I did. Uh, incredible man. Incredible legacy. Help us um, support his mission um, and, and support the millions of people around the world that need access to clean water and sanitation. Um, please join me uh, in the link below. I'll, I have a link to it's charitywater.org. Um, check out the movie, uh, which is charitywater.org backslash the spring. And... If you have the means, it would mean the world to me if you contributed to my father's campaign. Even if it's five, ten dollars, um, anything you can contribute would mean so much to me as I look to serve communities around the world with clean and safe drinking water, especially during these challenging times. So thank you guys so much for listening. It means the world to me, and I can't wait to bring you more amazing guests in the coming weeks. With that, please go out there and live your inspired life.